Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, a piece-by-piece, episode-by-episode exploration of the winners of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, with hosts Andrew Grenade and David Thurmeyer. Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, episode 28, where we're traveling back to 1970 and the 25th winner of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, Charles Werenen, for his electronic work, Time's Encomium. So, Dave... Let's talk about Chuck. <laughs> what do you know about Charles Warren? I remember as an undergrad seeing a book in the library called Simple Composition, nice. and it was anything but simple. I was lost after about the first page or two. So that was the first name time I'd seen the name. Uh, and then ever since, I think he was just kind of a, a hardcore serial composer and very like, kind of grumpy demeanor and exterior yeah. with a beard and gray hair and just kind of looked not happy with with the world or the music world or anything like that uh, and then recently he did a, the opera Brokeback Mountain uh, and I never I didn't see it heard some of it but uh, yeah so that's that's kind of I then I found out he was a gay he was gay and that was the like also a surprise. So with that demeanor, you didn't expect. For that, did not, did not, no, not with our with stereotypes there. But that's that's what I knew about Warren. And so, how about you? About the same. I mean, he's this composer that I recognize the name. I had him in the kind of mid-century grumpy modernist composers. That's kind of the the slot in my mind that I had him pegged in. Um, very little of his music. I knew very little of his yeah. music. I knew a couple of years ago, like you mentioned, the Brokeback Mountain. That was a big to do whenever it hit the papers and it was premiere, but I didn't get to see it. Uh, so he's one of these composers that I know more of than I actually know about. Mm-hmm. So I know his name, seen his name, know very little of his music. So in some ways it was a kind of coming to it fresh. And uh, certainly one of those super academic composers with, who really, uh, you know, Milton Babbitt, we have the article that they gave the name, who cares if you listen, but I think you, you could also be said about Charles Warren. I think Warren even more. This is my favorite. I gave you this quote because I knew you would enjoy this yes, quote, so yes. I pulled this quote, talking about this distinction between what he called art and entertainment. And He was very much a, I'm going to do serious art music. That was his kind of mindset. And he said, let's face it, talking about this entertainment music, whatever anthropological meaning it may have in society, <laughs> it is rather slight to say the least artistically for the most part. There are exceptions, I should say, before anyone gets upset. Because you would say the, the Beatles. Beatles. Yeah. Yes. But the elevation of this into a zone of high critical discourse has done enormous damage because it is confused. It has blurred distinctions that ought to be made. Why is it bad to say, for example, there is art on one hand and entertainment on the other? We all want both. We all use both. But the entertainment aspect is something that comes to us without our effort, while the artistic aspect requires us to put something into, into it as nuclear fusion and we get more out of it than we put in. What is so hard about that? What is so objectionable about that? And yet it seems to ruffle feathers when you say this. I think there's a kind of cosmic laziness involved in all of this, a self-indulgence coupled with a deep insecurity that makes people upset by such very simple, and to me, self-evident notions. Well, is he wrong? I would say he's wrong. <laughs> but I think I think his there are exceptions, I should say, before anyone gets upset is, is kind of his... I understand that there is entertainment that is also art. And I think that's the distinction is that he seems to be saying if it's entertainment, if it's trying to be entertaining and audience pleasing, it can't be art. Mm -hmm. That very famous Schoenberg quote, right? If it is for everyone, it is not art. And if it is for art, it's not for everyone. Right. But there is music. I think there is art that 
aims for a big audience that is still artistic. I think he basically negates that kind of middle road by this, you know, all or nothing, this very binary kind of idea. But Yeah, I agree. And I think it also ignores that a lot of art, however you define it, can be very entertaining it can as be well. Very. Going to hear a Mahler symphony, I think we would say that's art, uh, but it's also very entertaining to, and just a, a kind of experience yeah. too. So. Uh, yeah, it's I, it's that kind of modernist, high modernist. It's very much that binary. kind of mid-century, and we've talked about this before on the podcast. Those yep. composers. It's just interesting now that they're being recognized by the Pulitzer. Where I think if we were back in the 1940s and 50s, the composers who had this mindset would never have been awarded a Pulitzer Prize. And here we've seen such a shift that someone like Charles Warren, who basically would say all that kind of mid-century Pulitzer Prize winners are just aiming for entertainment. They're not, they're not true art. Mm-hmm. This is true art, serious, hardcore, intellectual music. And I think that's kind of where he is. Exactly. So how about this piece, Times Times Encomium? We, have, we, have to, we have keep tripping over that word. <laughs> yeah, maybe we should uh, discuss this piece and tell the story. <laughs> Telling the story. So this is a fascinating work because it's the first time an all-electronic piece has won the Pulitzer Prize. There's no acoustic music in here. Everything was done in the electronic world. We've seen snatches of this, right? We've talked about, what is it, two episodes ago? Leon Kirchner. Leon Kirchner piece that had both aspects of live performance and Electronics. We'll see that happen again in just a few years when we get to the Mario Davidovsky. But here is completely electronic. Yeah, so thinking about electronic music at this time in 1970, it was not a new thing. Babbitt, Stockhausen. That was over 20 years old. Yeah, over 20 years old by this point. So it was not new. But for him to do it, it was kind of interesting because he's, as we said earlier, a very 12-tone composer. So kind of following, following the Stockhausen model, uh, but his own background is, is very different than that. It, it's kind of uh, very elite, very intellectual, New York. Uh, well, maybe, in, come to think of it, actually, it does sort of fit that he would write this way. Well, it also fits that kind of that he would win the Pulitzer just because what we've seen is it's the New York elite circles. Yeah. I mean, he got his undergraduate degree in Columbia. He got his master's degree at Columbia. Then he was on the faculty of Columbia. Columbia is the Pulitzer School. Mm-hmm. That's where the Pulitzer are housed. And we've seen many composers in that orbit being awarded the Pulitzer. So it makes sense, even though when he won, he was also incredibly young to yeah. have won a Pulitzer Prize. He was 32 years old, so that is pretty young to win such an award. And this piece is also an anomaly in his output because it's the only only electronic piece he wrote. Right. Yeah. He was very much dedicated to the acoustic side of things. That's what he was really known for, um, is these very academic, yeah, <laughs> dense yeah. pieces Cereal. for acoustic, right, string trio, piano variations. I mean, those are the works that he was known for uh, before this piece. He composes this piece, and then he doesn't really go back. He doesn't live in the electronic world. He's known for writing for acoustic instruments. So this is an anomaly in some ways in the history of the Pulitzer, but also for him in terms of his output. And I wonder if he had regrets about it too, because this piece later was orchestrated for, for full orchestra. So 
maybe it's like, ah, I want to, it really should be an acoustic piece. And that was an experiment back in 1969. Yeah, so maybe that's what kind of has second thoughts about it in, in the electronic medium. Well, it was also commissioned, though. It was commissioned, yes. So the Nunchuch record label. <laughs> we love the Nunchuch label. Let me tell you. But they yeah. were commissioning. This is wild to us today to think about you know, a record label actually commissioning a piece. But that's right. what Nunchuch did. They commissioned this piece. And they were doing this regularly for electronic music. I think in some ways just to kind of show, hey, look, this is what we can do with recordings now. And it exists as a recorded medium. So it kind of makes sense that a record label would say, let's not commission something to be performed live, something that will exist on a record that then it shows what we can do, but also something we can sell that right. the only way you're going to get it is to buy our record. That's a good point. So it's good marketing. It's very good marketing. Yeah, very good marketing. What do you, what's your thought on purely electronic music and in terms of its appeal, its interest to the public, to academics, all of that stuff, kind of those straight up electronic pieces. Well, it's fascinating. I love the sounds. Yeah. <laughs> we <laughs> talked about this with yeah. Kirchner. Yeah. I love those kind of mid-60s electronic sounds. But I think today there is almost no difference between electric and acoustic because the electric has gotten to the point where if you turn on the radio, mm. you're by and large hearing either straight acoustic uh, electronic instruments or electronically processed instruments. So in some ways this was kind of presaging where composition, where the music world was going to go. I think electronics is the, the new frontier in the 20th century. You had so many acoustic instrument changes in the 19th century. They're pretty much frozen in the 20th century. There's not a lot of changes happening to acoustic instruments. So this is where things are happening and in innovation in electronic instruments since there weren't any in acoustic instruments. I think it's perfectly valid. I think it's really interesting. Um, at this point, though, I hear, and we'll talk about this when we look at behind the notes, but this is a piece that I feel like was trying to mimic what acoustic instruments could do. I think the most successful electronic instruments just throw that kind of idea out the window and embrace the fact that they're completely divorced from acoustic instruments. That was where I was going to go with it, too. I was thinking back to the Kirchner piece and how he, he said he liked the experimenting with it, but the problem was that it's fixed. Right. And it's always going to sound that way. You don't have the element of chance giving it to a performer and seeing, you know, every performance is going to be different of your piece, but it's, it's always fixed on tape. So you know, there's that the weird experiences when you go to an electronic music concert, you walk in and see the two speakers in the <laughs> dark and that you don't know when it's over. You don't, it's kind of a interesting experience. And I think in this case, yeah, it, you have that kind of issue, the fixedness of it. Right. That, that event, maybe, like I said earlier, maybe that's why Warren was like, well, I want to actually put some life, put some human experience to this piece by orchestrating it because I didn't like the fact that it was just stuck in that one spot. Which is frankly where electronics have gone. Yeah. yeah. Live electronics now is a very popular medium. Yeah, common. Very common. Uh, the computer gave us the ability to do that. MIDI-controlled electronics gave us the ability to do that. 1969, we didn't have that ability no. in the way that we do today. So it is. It's very fixed. It doesn't change. But I think what Warren was trying to do, I think it, the idea of electronics matched what those mid-century modern composers were trying to do, though, which was control, control, control. So you write a piece, you give it to the ensemble. Who knows what they're going to do with it? You do it for electronics, it's going to be just like you want it to be. 
So you have the total, well, as a serialist. As a serial composer. Yeah, you've got total control over everything. Just like when you're writing a serial piece, total serial piece, you've got the dynamics, articulation. Everything pitches, controlled really, by that system. Right, right. So it, is, it does kind of come out of that post-war mindset of the scientific kind of control, totalitarian right. idea. So in that sense, it makes it, it, you know, I can see what he was after. Oh, well, it sounds like we're... Tending that way, let's go ahead and go behind the notes. Behind the notes. Well, I don't know about you, but I think the best part of this is the sound uh, palette that's chosen. And mm-hmm. it, is, it reminded me a lot of Milton Babbitt's electronic music it really because did. it's the same RCA synthesizer. You probably know those great pictures of Uncle Milty standing in front of the, these big, huge monstrosities with all kinds of chords and plugs, and it's that same synthesizer. Well, it's the Columbia Princeton Electronic yeah. Music Center, which exactly. was formative in terms of electronic music composition in the U.S. So here he is at Columbia, taking advantage of these same sounds that you're right that Milton Babbitt was doing. I thought it'd be good to start with the program note. Yes. What Wernon was trying to do. Because what is encomium? What is enco- can't even say it. What does <laughs> encomium mean? Yeah, so he says times encomium is the title because in this work, everything depends on the absolute, not the seeming, length of events and sections. Being electronic times encomium has no inflective dimension. Its rhythm is always quantitative, never qualitative. Because I need time, I praise it, hence the title. Because it doesn't need me, I approach it respectively, hence the word encomium. Hmm. Which is, again, is a kind of dense way of saying what he's trying to play with, which is um, the experience of time throughout the length of this piece. Mm -hmm. And speaking of the length of the piece, it's a long one. It's a long one, half an hour. Half an hour of four-channel electronic music here with, as you said, no acoustic anything. It's not music concrete. This is straight up uh, electronic music and and no break. And no break. No, no. If you look, uh, the recording I have is in two parts, Mm -hmm. but they flow and and I don't notice any discernible difference here. But yeah, it was, it was, uh, I I found listening to it kind of an odd experience. Mm -hmm. I would, I would enjoy it for a while. Like I almost think I'd start laughing at some of those dated sounds. Mm-hmm. And then I think, this is the ugliest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> and then I think, oh, there's some cool rhythms here. And he talks about how rhythm mm-hmm. is very important. Uh, but it's, it was, it's a strange experience. You kind of get lost in it and here and there. Well, there's two things that kind of stood out to me. And I brought some uh, musical examples for us oh, to good. explore. Uh, because these two things, first is that there are melodies, not traditional melodies, but there are themes, let's say that yes. way. There are themes that return, and he doesn't so much vary them as just change the timbre around them. So you can hear them kind of shifting around uh, timbrely as they move through this kind of sonic spectrum. So I thought it would be useful to kind of hear how he's playing around with those timbres. Take one simple little theme, and you can hear just in you know, 30 seconds uh, how he's doing that. Thank you. 
so to me, those little do 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 do, which is so electronic. Yeah. But it's almost as if he's saying, "All right, the strings now play pizzicato here, and then the full orchestra will come in." Bum 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 bum. I haven't mapped this onto the orchestral version, so I'll be curious to see how he orchestrated it. But it seems to me in those the ways he's changing timbre that he's just thinking about it the same way he would think about orchestrating for acoustic instruments. As opposed to, say, Gesang der Junglinge, or something that's clearly conceived as an electronic exactly. medium, like you were saying earlier, taking advantage of that sound palette and the, the structure that comes in tape composition yeah. and not thinking about it as an analog to something. Yeah, I, I definitely hear that. And I, that part you just ended with, with the ba 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 Yeah, I, I could almost hear, I would be curious to hear contrafactum right, the, the orchestral, version. orchestral version of it, just to see if that is borne out. Uh, it, But it, it is kind of gripping in a weird way. It is. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a little long, like most contemporary works, but it's... Uh, Quite long. It goes on for about ten minutes too long. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just in terms of, well, I think sound quality. It's the timbres. Well, I think that's part of it is that we don't know how to listen to this music. That mm. was true then. I think it's still true now, and so we have to retrain our ears to get through it. And our ears are used to, you know, the types of things like melody and harmonic changes. And here we're having to switch over to focus on timbral changes and rhythmic changes and. I don't know about you, but that's just not my training no, as a musician. No. I'm trained around melody and harmony and simple rhythms. Well, that's you just said some said the magic word there. But thinking about our last few pieces, the husa with its performance techniques, changing timbres of the strings with the crum, and it's crum obviously is always all about timbre, and then the Kirchner as well. Do you think this has become the concern of the late '60s? I think it was the concern long before now. I think it's the concern of the 20th century. I think the Pulitzer Prize is just catching up. Ah, ah. I think that's the, the difference is they're just behind the times. <laughs> this kind of music had been around, like we mentioned, yeah, has been true. around for 25 years. So then for them to finally say, hey. <laughs> There's other things besides pitch and right. yeah, melody and stuff like so that. So I have to say, uh, I think it's heartening to see the Pulitzer move in this direction to recognize the kind of breadth of what was going on in what Wernham would say is serious or art <laughs> music. The other thing I thought was interesting that he did was when he actually would use what's available to him in the electronic sphere as opposed to thinking about how have an analog in the acoustic sphere. So I want to play a section where he's going to be playing with the right and left channels and sending things between. So if you have headphones on, which is I'm sure ideally what he was thinking of here, you can hear the music move between your left ear and your right ear go back and forth and playing with that kind of experience that you get in electronic composition. Artistically, I don't think that's the best section, but I appreciate what he's trying to do there. Doesn't that sound like Atari? 
during this the sounds for the Atari sounds games in the 19, we were growing up late in, 1970s and yeah. 80s yeah it's got that same kind of sound to it but the the yeah the sort of the phasing or the back and forth that was also not a new technique but it was not it was something that was played played with here in, in kind of effective ways. Well, and going back to Stockhausen and Alexander oh, yeah. Junglinga, yeah. who used complete surround sound right. in the performance, so you could hear the sounds completely moving around the sonic spectrum. It's amazing, amazing kind of idea. It's interesting to see him play around with it. Mm-hmm. And it's truly electronic, and that's what I appreciated about it, whereas most of the piece I didn't feel was fully committed to the electronic no, medium. It was more of an experiment. Well, let's see what uh, the critics thought here and what the Pulitzer board thought. Hit or miss? So since this was a recording and not a performance whenever it premiered, I grabbed a review from Gramophone Mm -hmm. to see what they had to say. So this is actually from 1977, so it's a few years later. They said, The ability of advanced and elaborate composition to project a strong vein of witty inventiveness is best shown here in Time's Encomium. Wernon evidently relishes the technical possibilities of a medium that dispenses with live performers. As with Nancaro's studies for player piano, there's an element of sending up the routines of traditional live composition, which adds greatly to the fun. Yet this is a substantial musical statement, not to be written off as incidental music for an unmade Tom and Jerry cartoon, which is probably my favorite line. <laughs> That's of the a day. great line. Yeah. There's no denying the power of the musical mind at work here, and the performances, aided by excellent remastering, will keep you listening. So very positive. Very positive. Hmm. Uh, and it was also very positive in the New York Times. There was a an article called "Electronic, but with Soul" oh. by Theodore Strongen, talking about this piece. And he said, whatever else it is, times encomium, it is every bit as personal sounding as a work done entirely by live performers. So very positive reviews at the time, people pointing it as a kind of exemplar of the electronic field. Hmm. Well, we'll get to our hit or miss uh, thoughts on this later, thinking about when it was in time. The uh, Pulitzer board, so this was actually premiered Thursday August 20th, 1969, at Tanglewood, of all places. Mm. And I love the program here. Tanglewood artistic director, Seiji Ozawa, Gunther Schuller, and Leonard Bernstein, advisor. So on this concert, we had, uh, tell me if you've heard of this one, Philip Bazanzen, five miniatures for clarinet and cello. Never heard that name before. Never heard that one. Then the Warren, then intermission. Then Chao Wen Chung, cursive, hmm. and then Edgar Varese, integrals, conducted by Michael Tilson Thomas. Oh, interesting. Yeah, at that time, very young Michael Tilson Thomas. So, so we have here's the board this year. Gunther Schuller mm. happens to be on the board. Otto Luning, another pioneer of uh, absolutely a pioneer from. Music who worked at Columbia, so pioneer of electronic music, worked in the Columbia Princeton Electronic Music Center, so that makes sense. Yeah, and then the chair of the committee, Vincent Persichetti. Interesting. Yeah, so the letter to Professor Hohenberg, the enthusiastic, unanimous first choice of the 1970 Pulitzer Prize Music Jury is Time's Encomium by Charles Warren. 
the jury considered a major statement in the purely electronic field in that it combines a perfect technical mastery of the medium with the imagination, inventiveness, and musicality always associated with the highest standards of musical expression. It represents a new breakthrough of quality in this medium, which will set criteria for it for the foreseeable future. It is without doubt the strongest work submitted this year. And they had 51 works submitted. That's a lot for that's that a year. Lot. And the runner-up was the superbly written fourth string quartet by Andrew W. Imbrie, which the jury considers a most important contribution to the string quartet literature. Hmm. So there's the uh, it's a very glowing review here from the board, from the press, from... Everybody, apparently. Well, I'll even say uh, in 1978, Elliot Schwartz wrote an article about the first 30 years of electronic music for the, in the Music Educator Journal, March 1978. And the very last piece that he included um, was this particular work by Charles Wurrenen. Uh He had 20 works that he thought were important. It includes uh, Varese's poem, Electronique, um, some Pierre Schaeffer and Pierre Henri, uh, Gazander Junglinger, which we've talked about, Steve Reich has come out, Morton Sobotnik's Silver Apples of the Moon. I mean, these are kind of standard yeah, electronic canonical. music. And Wernin's Times Encomium is there. So I think that it w it has been perceived as one of these kind of important landmark electronic works. Mm -hmm. So what did you well, think? <laughs> so Dave, tell yes. me a little about your well, thoughts about Times Encomium. It's hit or miss for you. Uh, I'm going to say I, I laughed at it. I, uh, I enjoyed some of it, but I would say on the whole, it's a miss. I think it sounds too dated and it's kind of hard to, hard to listen to a 31 minute electronic piece with a lot of the same timbres over and over again. It, it's just too long. Uh, so I think today, I, maybe it's because of what you were saying that uh, the way we hear music now and the sounds are so much more diverse that it's, it, this really is a hard listen. Mm -hmm. But for me, I'd say it's a miss. How about you? You know, it's interesting. I was just reading off those pieces, you know, Gesang der Junglinge and Silver Apples of the Moon and Reich's Come Out and Verez Poem Electronique. I enjoy listening to those pieces. Me too. All four of those pieces I think are fabulous. Yeah. This one just didn't do it for me. <laughs> so I can't say that it's the sounds because I enjoy a lot of pieces that have those kinds of sounds. I think the reviewer who said it, it's witty inventiveness, that's what I didn't hear. No. Where was the – but that's what they say about Milton Babbitt too. They say a lot of his 12-tune uh, his music, oh, there's a wit in there. And it's like I, I never quite, I hear that with Babbitt. Yeah. I hear that sly humor with Babbitt. Mm -hmm. I don't hear it here. I hear someone who is dedicated to <laughs> this 12-tone system and constructing a modernist piece. And to me, it should have been written in an acoustic medium. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe what we'll do is come back and listen after we've listened to Contrafactum and listen to the and give our opinion here and say if it works better, if, if that thesis is right. Yeah. You know, if it if what did, should have been written that way or if it really does fit. Because yeah, those other pieces are they're canonical electronic music pieces that we teach and yeah. our students kind of like them in a funky way. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, this one never really caught on. Well, at least I can't see myself teaching it. Let me put it that way. No, I wouldn't either. I wouldn't either. 
Well, I'll finish uh, before we sign off here. A uh, great quote from Charles Warren, just to keep you thinking here. Why hasn't the saxophone really caught on as an orchestral instrument? The sax, Warren suggested, does not satisfy any deep primordial need in the human soul. So, <laughs> strong opinions strong. from Charles Warren. <laughs> yes, very irascible as always. So that's it for today's episode of Hearing the Pulitzers. As always, you can find out more about our project at the website hearingthepulitzers.com, where you'll also find links in a short bio where you can read more about Charles Warrenen. Also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at HPulitzers for links between episodes. Finally, join us next episode when we explore another electronic score, and this is one of Andrew's favorites, this time with piano, Mario Davidovsky's Synchronisms number six. Until then, keep listening. (laughs) 